The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. So Dave, when he uh, asked me months ago, how would you preach this text? I said, don't break it up, Dave. When you get there, preach the whole thing, one sermon. And I got the email a couple weeks later with my uh, sermon assignment, and it was this text. Thanks, Dave. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the Word of God. Herein is the true grace of God. This is what we stand in. We need your help this day to see by faith what Stephen saw. So help me to be faithful, to proclaim, help your people to hear that my heart and their heart together worship our risen King that Stephen lived and died for and lived again for. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Everybody wants to be well thought of, right? That's the way that we're all born. We're born with a predisposition that we desire to be well thought of. Later in life you can learn other things. Maybe I can go it alone. I don't really care what other people think of me. But we start out with this kind of sense. We want to have a good name. That's a proverb, right? A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Who doesn't want to have popular in the majority kind of opinions? Who doesn't want to be held in esteem? Who doesn't want to have just generally a good reputation? As Christians in the United States, it has been the case for centuries that to name the name of Christ has carried with it a certain kind of cultural capital. Like, if you're a Christian, you name yourself as a Christian, that's kind of in the norm. Much of the country do I identify as a church-going, born-again Christian, at least since the days of Billy Graham in the 1950s, Billy Graham Crusades, has been well thought of at least and celebrated at most. To be a respectable American for a long time has meant to be a Christian, to be a Christian in most parts of our country. In our day, looking out over the horizon of the 21st century and what it holds for us, it's not the norm anymore. It's not the norms that uh, at least the opinions and the teachings of Christianity are celebrated, even by non-Christians anymore. For instance, Dave prayed about it. Just take the sexual revolution of the 1960s, and you see how it's metastasized throughout the last five or six decades so that norms concerning sex, gender, etc. are no longer norms and the teaching of the church for two millennia is no longer popular. And in fact, not even true in the minds of most people. Teaching on sin and calling humanity to repentance, it's not popular anyways. It's never been popular. But our culture has continued to steer away from these moral norms But I want to assert, together with what I think our text today teaches, that yes, although those moral norms have been steered away from in our culture, we continue to carry, as the Church of Jesus Christ, not a teaching mainly about morality, but about a person. And that is what we find in our text today that was so deeply offensive to the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem. 
the morality that we hold to, the doctrines and the truths that we hold to are not truly and mainly offensive because they stand on their own. They are truly and mainly offensive to fallen humanity because they're connected to a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who said he really was the God of the universe, the King of kings, the only Savior, and it was proven by his resurrection from the dead. So this morning, no less so than it was in first century Judea, he claims lordship over everything, and it's true. And if you ignore his claims of lordship, you do so at your own peril. He claims lordship over your allegiances, your preferences, your desires. And this is what the earliest Christians asserted. They saw their lord tried in the court of public opinion and canceled they saw their Lord actually tried in a court and criminalized. And they too have been judged in the court of public opinion, some thinking actually really well of them and some not. And they've been increasingly criminalized. Today, it's not that different. In our spot in society right now, it is not criminalized, and perhaps it won't be in the United States to actually hold to the teachings of Jesus and believe what's true about Jesus. But it is true that increasingly there's a cancel culture on unpopular ideas, unpopular thoughts connected to Jesus. The mob may seek to cancel those who proclaim truth, and magistrates, government officials may criminalize speaking truth. And we have to ask this question, I think, together with the text, together with Stephen, are we willing to suffer in the court of public opinion? Are you willing to be canceled on social media? Are you willing to even be criminalized for the sake of speaking the truth about Jesus? And are you ready and even willing to die, even if that seems so unlikely in our posh, tolerant America? Well, why is this going down in our story Everything about what's happening in Acts chapter 7 is happening because Jesus came and he's doing what he promised. I will build my church and the grave, the gates of hell, will not stand against it. The church is growing. It's growing bigly. Is that a word? I don't know. It's growing faster than pickleball is in Minnesota, which is apparently a big deal. I like wandered in here on Friday night and there were people playing pickleball. Um, somebody was on the internet yesterday or the day before. Everybody buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin. It's revolutionary. It's the biggest deal ever. New things come, new things go. The biggest thing that ever happened remains the same. Jesus Christ really did come, lived, died, rose, reigns. The early church lived for this. They faced opposition. In our text, it, it doesn't say, you know, in your ESV or whatever version you have, like, it was high noon inside Jerusalem. But that's kind of the sense of it. There's been skirmishes all throughout Acts where there's been a court hearing and then there's been this. But there's not been anyone killed for the sake of Jesus. The authority and his ambassadors, capital A authority and his ambassadors, are moving and the church is growing, 
and the so-called authorities in Jerusalem are responding. Acts 7 is a pivot point in the book. The promise of Acts 1-8 is that the disciples of Jesus are going to bear witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And how are they going to get there? How will it go outside of Jerusalem? Maybe through a surprising mechanism, surprising way, through conflict and even death. But should we be surprised that that's the case? The heart of Stephen's 52-verse sermon is a sermon, and David read it as a sermon. Thank you, David. The heart of this is Stephen is not surprised about what's going down. And if you know your Old Testament, you shouldn't be surprised either. And so he goes and he retells Israel's story. So if this was like a poker game, disclaimer, I'm not advocating for poker, everybody. All right. Is this, this a poker game? The magistrates are there, the ruling leaders are there, and they have all the cards. They're seeking to call Stephen's bluff. They're seeking to, seeking to make him go all in, just like they did with Jesus, trying to get him to say something worthy of death. But Stephen's holding in his hand this set. He knows the history of Israel, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to play that. The ones trying him are not the ones who are in charge. Appearances might say that this day that starts inside Jerusalem with a trial and moves outside of Jerusalem with an execution. Does that sound familiar to you? Trial inside Jerusalem, execution outside. It looks like the Jewish leaders are in power, but they're not. Might there be a word for us today, Bethlehem, and how we should think about our culture and how we should think about spreading the gospel in this increasingly unpopular or unsympathetic culture? I think so. So we're going to pray again and launch into the text. So Father, help as we look deeply, um, although it's a large portion of Scripture, help me be faithful here. Help your people to faithfully hear. In Jesus' name, amen. First, we see the defense of Stephen, and I think that's the point. I put that in quotation marks on purpose. Verses 1 through 50. Stephen takes 49 verses to build a defense to those listening to him on the basis of the two accusations that they made against him in chapter 6, verse 11 through 15. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 11. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So verse 13, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So this is the setup. Two accusations. These two accusations are going to drive what Stephen says throughout this time. So note verse 1. His defense is prompted by the high priest giving him an opportunity to do so. The high priest said, are these things so? So just to remind you, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, composed of dozens of people, both Pharisees and Sadducees, both the conservatives and the liberals. They've had many run-ins with Jesus. Caiaphas is the high priest likely in this day. He was high priest until about 36 AD. We've seen Caiaphas before. He presided over the hearing and trial of Jesus. When Peter and John were snatched out of the temple in Acts 4, Caiaphas was there. 
And in Acts 5, when all the apostles are brought in before the, the Sanhedrin, he's also there. And he's also there at the end of the Gospels when the guards come to him and say, we don't know what happened to the body. And he says, shh, here's a bunch of money. Caiaphas knows what's gone down. And yet, he still is here, unrepentant. He knows that the resurrection is true. So as these interactions have intensified, it's all reached ahead. What is Stephen's response? He could just simply say, not true. Yes, it is. But instead, we get what amounts to a full sermonic recounting of Israel's history in four big movements. So first, in verses 2 through 8, Stephen details the sheer grace of God in calling Abraham to inherit a land and give him great and stunning, stunning, stunning promises. Let's look at three here. First, a place. God granted Abraham and his offspring a place. He was in Ur in Saudi Arabia, and he traveled a thousand miles across the desert to settle in this land that God would show him. Look at verse 5. He didn't inherit any of it. It wasn't his to keep, which is why the next promise is so crucial. He promised him a people and specifically an offspring. There's no inheriting of the land without Abraham becoming a great people through having kids. And that's stunning, stunning, stunning because his wife is in her 90s and he is a centurion. He's, he's 100 years old. His good as dead body, is what he, the author of Hebrews tells us, brings new life through Isaac. But all of this is only possible because not only has he promised a place and a people, but also a presence. Do you see that right there in verse 2? Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham. His presence was with him despite the fact that Abraham was a pagan worshiping idols. This is Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3. Joshua's kind of final parting words to Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. And here's your fathers. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor. And they, all of them, served other gods. But then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Abraham was not chosen because one day he would stroll along. It's like, oh, there's got to be a greater God out there. Abraham was chosen by sheer grace. And how did God do it? He showed up in glory. So you turn back to Genesis 12 and you see the first interactions between Yahweh and between Abraham. It's just words, right? So Stephen asserts it wasn't just like in the background, some whisper. It was glory, big. That's really important for Stephen's sermon, as we're going to see as we trace through this. The glory of God appeared to Abraham. God took him out of his idolatry, out of worshiping false gods, and changed him. How? He appeared to him, and he spoke. So here's the, the, main, the upshot of the first section. God isn't in the business of taking what's great and making it greater. He's not even in the business of taking what's weak and making it stronger. He is in the business of taking what's dead 
and bringing it to life. He is in the business of taking what's nothing and giving it everything. That's our God. And he did that for Abraham. All through eyes, ears, showing Abraham who he was and then changing him, giving him the greatest glory to be transfixed by. So that's God's grace to and through Abraham. Then in verses 9 through 16, our second movement in Israel's history, we see God's grace to and through Joseph. Stephen continues to trace Israel's history by focusing particularly on Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. Why focus here particularly? What's, What's unique about this section? Here we see the introduction of a foil in our story. And the foil in our story, the the bad guys in our story, are not outside of the people of Israel. They're inside. They're insiders. See it in verse 9? The patriarchs themselves were jealous of Joseph. They sinned against their own righteous kin. The patriarchs themselves, the people of Israel, the descendants by promise, the Messiah's own ancestor, Judah, resisted God through hating their brother. The earliest rebels against God's plans in Stephen's story is surprisingly the patriarchs themselves. Just like, spoiler alert, Hydra was inside S.H.I.E.L.D. from the beginning. And it doesn't boil over until Captain America starts punching faces in that elevator or whatever that is. Uh, Just like, or just like, um, Racism being at the heart of our own nation and in many of the founding fathers, and that boils over in the Civil War 80 years after the founding of our nation or so. So too here, at the very root, at the very beginning of God's people, there's rebellion. Do you see here too a place, a people, and a presence? Look at verse 16. Stephen mentions the tomb of Shechem, which reminds us that both Abraham and Jacob, Abraham's grandson, they bought little pieces of land in the promised land, little tombs, and they were buried there in hope. This is why in Hebrews 11.22, it says that Joseph asked that his bones not be left in Egypt, but be taken out of Egypt and taken to Canaan. Why? The author of Hebrews says this is all an act of faith by the patriarchs. They wanted their remains in the place of promise in anticipation of further undefined promises that are for another sermon. Maybe in the book of Revelation, Dave, someday, hopefully, may it be. People. There's a place. But there's also the people. Throughout this, even with Israel's own resistance against Joseph, selling him into slavery, God is paving a way to make provision for his people and making them great in fulfillment of his original promise to Abraham. But there's also a presence. Just like before, this all starts because, check it out in verse 9, the patriarch sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. God's presence was still with each of these people and with his people as a whole. He preserved Joseph to prepare a way for his people, and indeed for the whole world, the entire ancient Near East to be saved. His presence was with them as they sojourned in Egypt. So first we saw God's grace to and through Abraham, now God's grace to and through Joseph. Now we're going to look at the biggest section here, God's grace to and through 
Moses. Here we see God's purposes for his place, his people, his presence worked out through this man, Moses. Moses' life is divided into three sections, each of 40 years by Stephen. And the last one, the last one of 40 years, actually goes past verse 35. I think our third and our fourth sections overlap a little bit in a way that will become obvious when we get there. So in the first 40 years, we see Moses as kind of an upstart who's seeking to free his people from the Egyptians. Stephen reminds his hearers that Moses found divine favor and carried divine blessing with him even prior to the burning bush. But notice here, too, there's resistance. There's a dual resistance, both outside the people of God, the king of Egypt that did not know um, God or did not remember Abraham, um, did not remember, not Abraham, Jacob, but also inside. There's resistance outside and resistance inside the people of God. The Egyptians resist God and persecute his people, yes, but Israel themselves resist God and persecute their messenger, uh, God's messenger, just like the patriarchs did to Joseph. In fact, we find that in Egypt, Israel went back to idolatry. Abraham started an idolatry. God took him out. Israel goes to Egypt. They go back. That's Ezekiel 20. God had brought Abraham out of idolatry only for them to revert back to it. So how will God rescue them? Stephen notes that God had purposes in Moses killing the Egyptian um, slave master and protecting his Israelite kinsmen. But Israel could not understand, would not understand what God was providentially doing. And the way that Stephen presents it, the Exodus account of Moses killing an Egyptian to protect his Israelite family, but then the Israelites expose Moses and say like, hey Egyptians, he did this. Well, this is an example of Israel again resisting God's purposes. But in the next 40 years, Moses escaped. He went out to the land of Midian. He had two sons. God's promises for offspring continued. And an angel appeared to him. See that again? An angel appeared to him. So too here, God's presence is still with his people to bring him to his place. And it's in this, if you actually read Exodus really closely, it's like there's an angel appeared, but then it's God that speaks out of the burning bush. So there's some kind of uh, interesting back and forth in that. So in the voice of the angel, God's own presence is there. So God commissioned Moses, and Moses went to free the people as God's representative. But how do you think they reacted to Moses? What's history so far tell you in these uh, few verses that we've seen over the last 20 minutes or so? You're starting to get a sense. There's patterns here that are building that Stephen keeps pointing out. So we reach verse 35 in the fourth section. And wherever David is, I don't know if you're on the comments or whatever, David read it exactly the right way. All right? Description, 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 description through verse 34. And then there's a shift in voice towards proclamation in verse 35. And David read it exactly the correct way. Stephen shifts his voice from descriptive to proclamatory. He's recounted much of what's taken place in Israel's history. And as it were, he shifts towards what kind of sounds like an application section in a sermon where he interprets the significance of Moses' life for those hearing him. And he introduces this phrase that's going to act as a hook that he's going to use later as kind of a bombshell. He starts saying this phrase over and over, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, four times in this section. 
Note the rejection in verse 35 and the mild play on words. The idolatrous Israelites, used to living in slavery to Egypt and used to worshiping idols, they challenge Moses. Who made you ruler and judge? We find out right away. God made him ruler and redeemer of Israel. And he led them out into the wilderness for 40 years. God continued to work, bringing his people to his place through his presence, particularly his presence with Moses. Do you see the sheer grace of God in this? God kept being gracious to Israel. Gracious that God would take them out of Egypt. Gracious that he would give them the law and a lawgiver. Gracious that he would promise to be with them through a sacrificial system where their sins could be forgiven. But they didn't receive and respond to that grace. Indeed, their hearts were hard. And that's what Stephen's getting after here. So in this section, there are four Old Testament quotes that Stephen leans on to further his argument too briefly and too longly, I guess. Too too shorter ones, too bigger ones. First, he quotes Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Um, That's in verse 37. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So he predicts, Moses predicted that a great prophet would come, and Stephen says, yep, And then second, he quotes two verses from Exodus 32 showing that the idolatrous Israelites continued to reject Moses and God in the golden calf incident there in verse 40. What is Stephen doing in dropping these, these little verses? He's dropping hints, well, about a coming prophet. He wants his hearers to see the connection. Moses was a great prophet, And the people pushed him aside. There's a greater prophet coming. What do you think they're going to do? What do you expect? What happened when Jesus came? So after these two brief quotes, he continues Israel's history, speaking about the level of idolatry they sunk into. He brings up a longer quote of Amos 5, 25 through 27, in verses 42 and 43. The people of Israel went into the wilderness and they found gods to kill their kids with. They were in the wilderness on the way to the land of promise. God had saved them by sheer grace. And God's promise that their their offspring would continue, he'd make them a great people, Um, they started killing their kids. How satanic. They worshipped other gods, the gods that Abraham, their ancestor, once worshipped, the god that their forefathers in Egypt had worshipped. They kept going back to the idols. Then Stephen notes that God's presence continued with Israel in the tabernacle and the temple. And he quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. He doesn't focus mainly on where God was in the Old Testament. He says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, this. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Isaiah 66 is a section about the new heavens and new earth near the end of Isaiah. By using this text, I really do think Stephen is signaling what he believes about the day in which he's living. The temple is obsolete. 
God doesn't dwell in a place made with hands, but fills creation. So, upshot of all of this history, before we turn the corner to verse 51. By creating a bridge to all of the history of Israel with the our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. And then with these four Old Testament quotes, Stephen is answering the original accusations back in chapter 6. If we were to ask Stephen how he's answering them or how he answered them, maybe we'll ask him someday ourselves, it would be this way. Their accusation, Stephen speaks against this holy place. Stephen's response, God isn't bound by any place to begin with especially in this, the last of the ages. Don't you know your own history, Israel? Stephen speaks against the law, speaks against Moses. Stephen's response. There's a greater lawgiver and prophet coming. In fact, he came already. And it's not like Israel cared about or kept the law anyways. Don't you know your own history, Israel? So that's when we turn the to verse 51, and this defense has not been a defense at all. It's been a case being built so that he can accuse the people that are about to kill him. All along, he's been building a case, and we see now the turn of the tables in verse 51. He's played the part of one under trial, but he's not under trial. He's played the part of one being accused. He is not the one being accused. Rather than this being a defense, this is his last opportunity. His last opportunity to, yes, make an accusation, but as we'll see, not in vengeance or vehemence or malice, but in hope. It's like a Trojan horse, like, you know, soldiers sneaking inside the city. It's like um, um, jujitsu or judo, like where somebody attacks you and you take you, turn and throw that back around on the other person. He labels them in verse 51, first half of verse 51, rebels. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The accusation connects those standing in judgment over him. Inside Jerusalem, with all of rebellious Israel's history, the leaders of Israel in Stephen's day are not the spiritual successors of David and the faithful prophets. They're the spiritual successors of false prophets and wicked kings. They've been hard-hearted like their forefathers. But we have to remember this. There's always been a line of rebel and remnant, of truth and true, Christ, uh, true uh, not Christianity, true believers inside Israel while the majority have rebelled. Remember in 1 Kings, Elijah thought he was the last one in ancient Israel, but there were 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee yet. Micah the prophet foresaw a time where God would bring out the remnant from rebellious Israel and then turn around and use the remnant to preach to Israel and then to go to the nations. And that's happening. So the label, rebels, their lineage, their ancestors are murderers of God's messengers. As your fathers did, so do you. Which the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Notice the strong shift. He set it up. Our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. Your fathers, Caiaphas. Your fathers, Annas. Your fathers, Saul. 
Saul's there listening. You've killed the prophets. And long ago, you decided to kill me. You killed Jesus. You killed me. Who's surprised by this? What's implicit? Stephen sees himself as in the line of faithful prophets who speak God's word and then go suffer and die. It's alas, their liability. They're the murderers of God's Messiah. They longed for Messiah and they killed him. Jesus is he who, in verse 52, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the biggest accusation. They looked for their king, they longed for their king, they killed their king. What they say is true of Stephen is true of them. They've defiled God's temple by killing God himself. They've not kept the law or cared about what it pointed towards. So in conclusion, let's just ask this question real fast. I think this is interesting to think about. How does Luke know about this speech? If you remember at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he does an orderly account where he says he's conducting interviews of various people. I think it's really possible that Luke knows about this speech, certainly under the banner of the Holy Spirit's inspiring all of this, but that he interviewed the Apostle Paul. Because Paul is present. And he had some stuff that he wrote about these topics, about rebel and remnant. Can you imagine? You're convinced that what you're doing is righteous in standing in judgment over this guy, and you're going to say, yeah, kill him, kill him. And then you're hearing him say, there's always been a rebel, rebellion, and there's always been remnant in Israel, and God's purposes still continue. And decades later, Saul, the Apostle Paul, wrote, writes Romans 9 through 11, where he speaks a very similar word, painting a picture of the reality of, well, is it true that God has rejected his people? No, I'm an Israelite. There's a remnant inside Israel. So this is Romans chapter 11. After recounting what uh, God's interaction with Elijah that I mentioned earlier, Romans 11 verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, righteousness. The elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they, Israel, stumble in order they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So if their trespass, Israel's trespass, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? God's plans are not thwarted by anything. Period. Stephen dies, and what do we see? Stephen dies so that Saul might live. Even Israel's own resistance will not mean that Israel will finally be lost. God will save all the remnants of Israel and will save the Gentiles too and make them one in the church. In Stephen's sermon, we see the planting of seeds. Seeds in Saul's heart that will grow and push the gospel not just out into Judea, but all the way to Rome by the end of this book. We see the seed of God fulfilling the Great Commission to go out from 
Jerusalem. So how is it that Stephen can boldly do this in the face of such threats? He has got hope. There was a typo there when I sent it originally. Stephen's gusty hope. Thank you, Lord Wise and Sell, for uh, catching that. It's not gusty hope. It's gutsy hope, all right? But it could be gusty, too. It's a big deal. It's worth proclaiming. This hope that though he is about to be killed, he is not going to die. The people who apparently have power of life and death over him don't actually. If God appeared to Abraham, if God went with Joseph into Egypt, if God was with Moses through all the trials in the wilderness, and God was with every martyred prophet in the Old Testament, and God is with Stephen as he is being tried and killed, he's going to be with us to the end, come what may. Jesus Christ is Stephen's hope in life and death. Is he yours? Is he ours? Enough so to be on our lips so it can be gutsy and gusty. Our world has been wrapped in a pandemic. We've seen civil unrest. There's been war all throughout history. Not just this last year, all throughout history. What hope do we have to offer? Is it the stability of a country of good laws? Is it the stability of families that are nuclear and stay together? All those things are shakable. This is not. We have a great assurance, steadfast hope that we share with Stephen, who's alive in God's presence now, Christ himself. God is not ashamed to be called Stephen's God. He's the God of the living, not the dead. All the Old Testament could only point towards Stephen has, and we will too. And we do now in some sweet, mysterious way in Christ. Are you afraid of being canceled? Are you afraid of being criminalized by mobs, by magistrates? Stephen here provides a pathway for us to say, this is true about God and his purposes. If nothing can thwart his plans, I can be faithful, come what may. We can be faithful, come what may. What about family? If we get canceled or criminalized, if, you, if your social media blows up because of something you said at work or at school and everybody cancels you, you shut down your social media account, we will be here for you. If you get criminalized, if, God forbid, but maybe we say something from a pulpit and someday down the road, that's, that's not okay, and we're criminalized, remember us and we'll remember you too. And in this way, we will remember the love of Christ they has for one another. This is a promise that we share, blood-bought family, and we will keep it by God's grace with each other. Hear me this morning. If Jesus is who he said he is, then he is worth dying for. And everything that he says about righteousness and judgment and morality and the word of God is entrusted to his church to proclaim it's worth being canceled and criminalized over because it's only temporary. He is the one that canceled our sins. I can get behind that cancel culture. He's the one that was criminalized for our sake. I'm happy to be a criminal with him, if that's what it comes to. You, this day, if you don't believe this news, if you don't trust his promises, you can turn from your sins and embrace him. Whatever you've done, he won't cast you out. He's not going to cancel you. He will keep you. He will embrace you. He will bring you into his family, and his family won't end forever. 
took all of your sins and nailed them to the cross. If you'll believe, his own righteousness can be yours in place of your feeble efforts to find God's approval. That's the good news we love and believe. He who lived a life that we, including Stephen, could not live. He who died a death that we and Stephen deserved. He who rose from the dead, as Stephen certainly will, and he who is reigning right now in heaven, as Stephen is with Jesus, will come again in salvation and judgment. For those in Christ connected to him by faith, it will be salvation through judgment on Christ instead of us, so that death will mean life eternally. This is the promise. You can come and believe if you haven't. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.